Hope you got some uh, good and restful sleep and are ready to dive into God's word in Romans again this morning. Let me invite you to take a Bible if you have one and turn to Romans chapter 4. That's where we're going to be for this morning's session. Talking mainly about the character and nature of faith. So we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham and what Paul says about that theologically in uh, a few verses in particular in Romans chapter 4. If you were asked by somebody on the street, how would you define faith? Just, just the word faith. I mean, it's not an unusual word in our culture and in our, in our world. But I think it is a word that is, most of the time, badly defined in our world, even by Christians. I, uh, my family and I, every Thanksgiving, get up and we watch the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade together. And belief or faith is one of the main themes that always kind of runs through that Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? So they've got the reviewing stand where the news anchors will sit and talk about all the things going on in the parade and how awesome it all is. And usually most years above the reviewing stand, there's a, there's a, a dial that looks a little bit like a speedometer that they'll talk about as being the believometer. And every time a float comes by and people cheer, you know, dude's dance by wearing green tights, the little believometer will sort of, you know, bounce up a little bit higher because everybody in the crowd is supposedly believing in whatever, Macy's, elves, I don't know, but belief is in the air, right? Faith is in the air. Well, at the end of the parade, of course, you know who shows up at the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, It's, it's Santa, always in a highly artistic sleigh, right? Sometimes in the shape of a goose or an egg or, I've never understood why the sleigh is shaped in the shape of things other than a sleigh, but it always is. And the believometer, when Santa comes on the scene, just goes absolutely nuts on the reviewing stand. You know, the, it's like the needle breaks and it spins around and confetti flies out of it because supposedly belief in the world has reached its highest point as, as Santa Claus comes onto the scene. Friends, that's what the world thinks of faith. They think it's a joke. I mean, they think, it's, they think it is Someone believing in something ridiculous or cartoonish. Belief or faith, which in the Bible are the same word, are just something childish and and stupid. And so when you show up as a Christian and you start talking about faith or belief in Jesus, guess what category they put you into? The same category as people who believe in Santa Claus or Puff the Magic Dragon or the Easter Bunny or anything else that's ridiculous. Those people believe in Santa Claus. Those people believe in the Easter Bunny. Those people believe in Puff the Magic Dragon. Those people believe in this or that or fairies or stones or crystals or whatever it is. And these Christians believe in Jesus. No difference. But is that really what faith is? When the Bible talks about faith, is it really talking about faith in something ridiculous when you don't have any evidence for it and it's just sort of the last readout of you being able to hold on to what you want to hold on to? It's just, I, I believe it because of, because of faith, we say. I don't have to have any evidence for it. I don't have to have any good reasons. I just, I just believe it by faith. Is that what the Bible says? Well, I want to try to convince you today that no, that's not what the Bible says about faith. Actually, the Bible says something entirely different about faith, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the life of Abraham. Let me sort of catch you up on the, the uh, argument of Romans. We're not able to do expositional sermons on every verse in the, 
uh, in the book this weekend, but we are trying to give you an overview and show you some of the, the, the sort of, as Mark said last night, the key bones in the argument of what Paul is doing throughout the book. So last night, Mark uh, spoke on Romans chapter two and moved a little bit on into Romans chapter three. The argument so far, as Paul has been laying it out in this very systematic letter where he's introducing the gospel to this church in Rome, he wants them to understand that he believes the same gospel they do. The way it's worked so far is that in Romans chapter one, Paul takes aim at Gentiles and says Gentiles are are worthy of God's wrath. They're sinners and rebels against God. They've exchanged the the glory of God for images made to look like birds and animals and reptiles and and, and most egregiously idols made to look like themselves. That's what he says in Romans chapter 1. And of course, by the end of that chapter, when he riffs off all of these terrible things that the Gentiles are guilty of, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. He just keeps going and going and going. He knows that his Jewish readers are gonna be standing over in the corner going, yeah, go, go, Paul, get them, get them. They're Gentile dogs. They deserve everything you're, you're giving them. But then of course in Romans chapter two, verse one, Paul turns his bony apostolic finger at those people clapping and says, therefore you who are clapping have no excuse because you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You have an outward righteousness, you say you love God's law, you say you wanna obey God's law, and yet you constantly break everything that it says. So you too are guilty of sin. So he runs on through Romans chapter three, answers a couple of objections that someone might raise to his argument so far, and sort of ends with this poem of verses that he pulls from various places in the Old Testament that runs from Chapter 3, verse 10, all the way down through 18. You can look at that. Then by 19 and 20, as Mark concluded last night, he comes to this terrifying conclusion that every single one of us as human beings are one day going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we will all be held accountable to God, we'll stand under his judgment, and even worse, not one of us will have any excuse for our sin. Every mouth will be stopped he said. It's terrifying. And if the, I mean, you can imagine that Paul could have just put the pen down at the end of verse 20 and closed the book and, and, and that would have been it, right? I mean, in fact, everything about justice and righteousness and holiness would say that maybe that's exactly where God should have ended the book with us. He had every right to. We'd sinned against him. We'd rebelled against him. We'd exchanged his glory for images and idols and even for ourselves. What we deserved was wrath and death and decay and hell. And if God had simply sent us all to hell, if he had simply just wiped us all out as any king worth his salt would do with rebels like us, the angels in heaven would have applauded him and praised him forever for his justice and his righteousness. They would have said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who does not stand for rebels to raise their hands against him. But praise God, he he doesn't end the book there. He goes on into Romans chapter three, verse 21, and explains that the only way of salvation from this predicament that we're in is rebels who deserve God's wrath. The only way out of that predicament is to rely on Jesus Christ, whom God sent as a substitute to absorb the wrath of God for us. A champion who would fight the battle that we failed to fight, that we had already lost 
to pick up the sword that we dropped to, to fight Satan, to fight the flesh, to fight sin, and to win in our place. And so through the rest of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, what Paul says is that salvation comes by relying on this one who is the champion, who fought the battle for us and absorbed the wrath of God for us. In, in other words, what he ends up saying is that salvation comes to those who believe or have faith in Jesus. But of course, the next question becomes, okay, but, but, but what do you mean, Paul? What, what is this faith? I understand that salvation comes by faith in this champion, in, in Jesus, but, but what is it? What does it look like, and how do you do faith? Is it, is it really just this belief in the ridiculous against all evidence? And so in the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul unfolds that question. What is faith? Using the life of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, as the example. And what he's saying is, is this, in the life of Abraham, you can see it in the story, you can see it in his biography, this is what faith looks like. So let's begin reading. I'm going to read just a few verses out of Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now what Paul's doing here really in these four or five verses is painting a, a beautiful picture, I think, of the nature and character of faith. And we've said, we've said before that, even last night as we were talking, that faith is not this kind of wimpy, empty, greeting card word that people today think it is. It's a, it's a strong word. Paul says, it's, it's full of assurance, it's full of confidence, it's full of, it's full of strength. And when you understand that, when you start to realize that your faith as a Christian is not some wimpy, empty, Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade word, but rather a strong word, I think it helps you to take your Christianity from the defensive, where it so often stays, to, to the offensive. I think so often in our world, we Christians think we have to hold our Christianity on the defensive against the world. We're constantly on the, on the back of our heels against the world. And, and the reason for that is because we have nagging at the back of our minds the, the fact that, you know, we, we can't really see the God that we talk about. He's not someone who's, who's visible to us right now. I mean, when we sing songs to, to God, I mean, our, our eyes are either on the screen or, or they're looking up at the ceiling or the bright, really bright light. But our eyes are not on God. We talk about it that way metaphorically sometimes, but, but we can't see this God that we talk about. And none of us have ever seen Jesus. And praise God, we haven't. I mean, there is no body of Jesus somewhere laying in a museum the way a mummy lays in a museum. None of us have ever seen the body of Jesus. It's in, it's in heaven. The events of his life took, took place 2,000 years ago. And those events are so extraordinary, so amazing, so unusual that I think we Christians kind of just, just cower sometimes when the world presses on us, presses on our Christianity, or even laughs at us because of it. And so a lot of times what we'll do is sort of let ourselves get backed up into a, a rhetorical or logical corner. And our, our last line of defense as Christians often is, well, well, look, 
I, I know you may think that, and I know you may have your reasons for not believing in Jesus, but, but, but you, you just have to take it on faith. And the world will press and press and press. Why do you believe? Why do you believe? Why do you believe? Do you have any reasons for your belief in Jesus? And we just back up and say, you, you, you just gotta take it on faith. And of course, when we do that, the world that's pressing on us just goes, oh, okay, that's what I thought. You don't have any good reasons for your faith. You just take it on faith. But see, Paul here in Romans chapter four is saying that faith is really the exact opposite of that. It's not a wimpy, empty word. It's not empty belief in the ridiculous when you don't have any evidence for it. It's a strong, confident belief that God will in fact keep his promises. And it's a belief in that not for no reason, but for the very good reason that God always keeps his promises. What Paul says here is that that's the kind of faith that ought to mark us as Christians, just as it marked Abraham. So I told you last night that I'd like to give you a main idea that encapsulates the meaning of the text. And if I'm doing this whole thing right, ought to encapsulate the main thing that I say to you in the sermon. And here's that main idea for Romans chapter 4, 18 to 22. Faith is not a weak, empty belief in the ridiculous. It's not a weak, empty belief in the ridiculous. Faith is a strong, confident trust in God to do everything that he's promised. It's not a weak, empty belief in the ridiculous. It's a strong, confident trust in God to do everything that he has promised. But that's not to say that faith is easy. Because here's the thing. What, what you're going to see as we make our way through these verses today is that some of what God promised to do for Abraham looked on its face impossible. And when God made his promise to Abraham and Sarah that he was gonna give them a son, they, they laughed at him because it looked so impossible to them. I mean, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old, but that neither one of them had had any children in their entire lives. And so what God promised looked ridiculous. So the irony of faith is that sometimes it really is about believing that the ridiculous the seemingly impossible, is in fact going to happen. But it's not a blind belief in that. It's not a reasonless belief in that. It's a belief that if God Almighty has said he's going to do something that we look at and think, that's ridiculous, that's impossible, or that the world looks like and says, that's ridiculous, that's impossible. If the Lord God Almighty has said that he's going to do it, our role as Christians is to stand back and look out because the God of the universe is in fact going to do it. If you understand that, if you, if you learn how to ground your faith and your trust in the reality and the character of a God who created the world out of nothing, then all of a sudden, faith in that God doesn't look weak or empty or ridiculous at all. It looks like a truth-grounded, promise-founded trust in the living God to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And so in that light, the ridiculous thing actually would be to look at that God and say, I'm not going to believe that you'll keep your promises. So three points, questions really, as we explore this morning the nature and more importantly, finally, the object of Christian faith. Here they are, three points of the sermon, three points that I want to try to get across to you this morning. Number one, this is a, this is a question, it's worded kind of funny, but, but here it is. Faith is what? Question mark. Faith is what? Number two, faith in what? Question mark. 
Faith is what? Faith in what? And then number three, faith does what? So I worded those like that so that they would be parallel. But if you want better sentences, you can go, what is faith? What do we put our faith in? And what does faith do? <laughs> so whichever, which, if you're, Ryan last night told me that one of the things he loves most in life is symmetry. I'm sort of the same way. But if you're not one of those people, go with the better phrased questions. What is faith? What do you put your faith in? And what does faith do? All right. So number one, faith is what? So we're talking about the definition of faith. Talking about the definition of faith. Back up in verses 16 and 17, Paul had been saying to, saying to his readers again that Abraham, because of his faith in God, was, was gonna be the father, not just of Israelites, but of everyone who would have the same kind of faith that Abraham himself had and therefore be saved. He's been talking about that for quite a while now, really since the beginning of, of chapter four, but verse 18 kind of breaks open a new question. Oh, okay, Paul, you've been talking about faith, but what do you mean by faith? How, how, do, you, how do you define the word? He'd, he'd mentioned it several times in chapter four, and, and kind of like you and I as Christians, everybody who's reading this book would have had a, a vague idea what the word faith meant. But, but if this faith that Paul keeps banging on in the book is the way we reach out and, and grasp the gift of salvation. If, if it's the act of relying on Jesus to save and on, on God to keep his promises, then it, then it becomes really important for us to understand what it means and what it is. So from 18 to 22, that's what Paul does. He explains what faith is by describing exactly how it operated in Abraham's life. So you, so you can see that he, he sort of comes to the conclusion of the matter in verse 22. And he kind of brings it down, right? That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That, that's why. Everything that I've been saying from 18 through, through 21, all that is why his faith was counted, was, was counted to him as righteousness. Because it had this, this character that I've been describing for you in these, in these verses. So what's going on? 18 through 21, Paul is, is describing what faith is. Now, he, now, the way he does this, this is fairly typical for Paul. He sort of circles around the answer and raises the, the tension and the stakes with every new thing that he puts onto, the, onto the, the definition, right? You could see that he did that last night, even in the topic sentence of the book of Romans. You remember that? How, how each little four in the sentence is sort of built on the last one. He does that all the time in his books. His argument just ratchets up as he adds one more component after, after the other. It's exactly what he does here in Romans 18 through 21. So because of that, because it's this kind of progressive argument that gets higher and higher and higher, it, it's most useful actually to look at the end of it if you want the kind of final definition of what faith is. So let's look at the end of it, verse 21. This is what he finally comes down to, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, now however you slice it, that final definition of faith that Paul gives there, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he was promised. However you want to think about that, that is not a wishy-washy, wimpy, weak belief in the ridiculous, is it? It's something else. I mean, I mean, just look at that first phrase, fully convinced. That's what faith is. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. It's, it's not this sort of thing that the world's got in believing or faith where, where you just, well, I, I hope this is true. Or, or I, I think this is true for me, or, or I find strength somehow in, in thinking that this is the case. That's not faith, no. According to Paul here in verse 21, faith is to know, not just hope, but know that something is true. 
to be fully convinced of it. That's a basic definition of what faith is in the Bible. Now in the prior verses, say 18 through 20, before he gets to that grand definition, Paul kind of circles around it. He describes faith, he, he fills it in. And so we wanna look at what he says in those few verses. So let's step through 18, 19, and 20 together. So first verse 18, look at that. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he, had been, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So here's the first thing that Paul says about faith. He says, faith is believing God's promise even when everything else around you would say this is impossible. Faith is believing God's promise even when everything else around you would say this is impossible. That's what Abraham was doing. God had promised, you're going to have offspring. So shall your offspring be. In fact, you're not just gonna have one. They're gonna be as the, the sands of the sea and as the stars of the, of the heavens. And anybody in the world would have looked at Abraham and Sarah, 100 years old and 90 years old, and said, no way. That's not gonna happen. It's impossible. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, think about this promise. I mean, Abraham was 100 years old. He's way past the age at which... Naturally speaking, he should have been able to have any children. And even worse, his wife Sarah was, was barren. She'd never had any children and she was 90 years old. That word barren there in verse 19 even carries a kind of connotation of deadness. Paul's kind of underscoring the, the deadness of Sarah's womb. There's, there's no life there. So how is a, how is a nation going to come from Sarah? So Abraham's 100 years old. His wife is 90 years old. Both are way past the, the natural age for bearing children. And Sarah is, is barren. Abraham has all that standing against him. And yet God also looks at all of that and says, and yet this is going to happen because I'm gonna make it happen. See, Paul's saying that's kind of the nature of faith. The nature of faith is to, to look at everything over here and say, yes, I, I see the impossibility of what's being said that is gonna happen, right? I see that. I see that Abraham's 100 years old and Sarah is 90 and she's barren and they don't have any children and I, I see all of that stuff that's stacking against this. But over here, I see the bare, naked promise of God. And this is heavier to me. The bare naked promise of God is heavier to me than all the circumstances over here that would say it's not going to happen. This is heavier. This is weightier. This is worth trusting. I'll trust the promise of God over my fears. I'll trust the promise of God over my doubt. I'll trust the promises of God over my skepticism and over my circumstances simply because God said it. I have uh, three children. I think it was mentioned at some point in one of the introductions. Uh, uh, they are 14 and 10 and seven. So I have a 14 year old son, his name is Justin. I have a 10 year old son whose name is Jack. And then I have a seven year old son whose name is, uh, is Juliet. Years ago when my, yes, daughter, sorry. Whew. You know, 20, uh, 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been quite as funny as it is these days. <laughs> or as embarrassing, but there we are. Anyway, several years ago when my, when my uh, first son, Justin, was, you know, one and a half, two, two and a half years old, we would go to my parents' house. They, they had a, a swimming pool in, in Texas. And I just determined that I was going to teach my 
my little one and a half, two year old, two and a half year old son how to, how to swim. And so we, we dolled him up, right? We put him in his little swimmy diaper and put his, put his pants on him and everything. He was, he was super cute. And, and so what I was trying to do is I would get down in the pool, right? And, and he would stand on the side and I was trying to get him to jump into the pool. And, and so, you know, I would stand underneath him and hold my arms out and, and, and say, Justin, come on, come on, buddy, jump, jump to me, you know, and we'll, we'll splash in the water. It'll be okay. I'm not going to let your head go under. I'm not going to let your face get wet. None of these things. I promise I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And he would sort of look, look at me in his little swimmy diaper, right? And, and there was the look of the worst sort of skepticism on his face. <laughs> I am not going to do this. There is no way I'm jumping in that pool. Well, eventually I said, okay, Justin, here's, here's what we're going to do, buddy. If you will jump in the pool, I will give you five M&Ms. <laughs> Which, of course, to a two-year-old is like gold, right? I mean, this is, this is huge. So five M&Ms for, for one jump. So he, he, he gets up to the edge of the pool like this. And, you know, it's, you've, you've seen these little kids that that will do this, right? And they'll, they'll get on the edge of the pool and their swimming diapers are already kind of full because he's been playing on the step, right? And he, he kind of shakes the swimming diaper a little bit and, and he, it looks like he's about to fall over into the, into the pool, but then he, he gets down like this, but then he stands up and looks at me and he says, no, <laughs> I go see mommy. And he turns around and runs down, the, <laughs> runs down to the house, finds his mom. Well, eventually, finally, I had to up the ante and offer you know 10 and then 15 M&Ms and then a whole all back finally I, I won and he decided okay I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in the pool and so he he got on the edge and he did his little thing shimmy the, the swimmy diaper shimmy again and he, he sort of as you've seen these kids do it he didn't so much jump it's just flop into the pool but guess what I was underneath him and my arms were outstretched and I caught him like before he ever even hit the water and I sort of dunked his little legs into the, the pool but made sure that no water got anywhere near his face or his head. I just, just dumped his little legs in there. And, and when, when he sort of found out that he hadn't died or even gotten wet, he looked at me with the biggest grin on his face as if his life were changed. And so he said, doot again, daddy, doot again. And so I lifted him back up on the side of the pool. And then, I mean, we were just off to the races for like hours. It was just jump, catch, reset, jump, catch, reset. I was getting him a little deeper every time. And occasionally, you know, I would, I would grab him and dunk him a little deeper than he wanted. But <laughs> the Rubicon was crossed, right? I mean, we were having fun. And it was just over and over and over again. Well, as the week where it wore on that, that we were with my parents, we, we noticed that Justin our little two-year-old son, would, he would go up to the pool as we were down barbecuing or whatever, and, and he would sort of play around the edges of the pool. And so my wife asked me at one point, she said, do you think we should go up there and, and get him? Because you guys have been, he's been jumping in the water all this time, and he loves it. And she said, I'm afraid that he's just going to take a leap and jump into the water, and he, he really can't swim yet. So should we, should we stop him from doing it? And, you know, I, you know, I sort of just watched. I just kind of wanted to see what would happen. I'm fast. I could get up there and get him if he did it. And he would learn a lesson from it. We watched. And, and, and it just dawned on me after a while, he's not going to jump in the water. And there's no way. He would get up right to the edge and he would put his finger in or he'd, you know, sit down on the edge and put his, put his feet in. But there's no way he was going to jump. Why not? Why was he so willing to jump when I was there in the pool, but not when I was down next to the, to the grill? Why was he so willing to jump? The reason was that he was willing to jump was because his father was standing under him with his arms outstretched saying, I promise, buddy, I will catch you. He knew I'd keep my promise. And when I did, he would fly. It's the same thing with Abraham and faith here. Faith is believing God's promise 
Not just taking a flying leap, but believing God's promise, even when everything else around you would say, this is impossible. Look also at verse 19. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of, of Sarah's womb. It's interesting there. He, he didn't weaken in faith. Despite everything that he saw in the circumstances, he didn't weaken in faith. It's kind of a play on words. I mean, God's promise to Abraham didn't come to fruition for, for years after God made it. And so for, for years, Abraham had to wait on God, even as he watched his own body weakening. But he didn't weaken in his confidence that God would do what he promised. So here's the second thing that Paul says about faith. Faith is believing God's promise, even when everything else around you would say, this is impossible. That, that's what I said before, right? Faith is believing God's promise, even when everything else around you would say, this is impossible, and doing it for a long time. Doing that for a long time. See, Christian faith is not a short-term thing. It is a lifelong commitment to God. And you and I as Christians know that the promises are out there. We know that God has promised eternal life and an end of sin and an end of sorrow and the return of, of Jesus. But we have to wait a long time for that, don't we? Or at least it seems that way to us. It seems like we've been waiting for, for so long. I mean, I mean, maybe you've been waiting in your life for 30 years or maybe you've been waiting for, for 40 or, or 80 or 100 years. Maybe that's how long you've been waiting for God to keep his promises. And when you think about the whole Christian church, I mean, even since the Reformation, we've been waiting for 500 years for God to keep his promises. And if you go back beyond that, we've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to keep his promise to come back. But, but you've got to remember that God is much older than all of that. He is the ancient of days. He's, he's the rock of ages. And so to him, 2,000 years isn't very long at all. And the 70 or 80 or 90 years of our lives are, are nothing. They're just like grass in the wind. And the 25 or 35 years that some of you have been waiting, that's like less than nothing to God. I mean, look, here's the reality. As the years roll on in your life, your body is going to weaken. The circumstances and the hardships of life are gonna press and grind, but the nature of faith is despite the weakening, despite the pressing, despite the grinding, the nature of faith is to trust God through it all for a very long time. Look also at verse 20. Look also at verse 20. Paul says there, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, if you're like me and you ask questions of the Bible that are meant to sort of draw out its meaning, the, the question that you're asking there of verse 20 is, hold up. Abraham did waver in his faith. I mean, Paul, what are you talking about? I mean, is this just like a, 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 is this just like a you know, puff piece on Abraham that we're doing here where we're gonna ignore most of his life? I mean, what are you talking about that he didn't waver in his faith? I mean, even when God made the promise, it's not as if Abraham just planted his feet in the ground and crossed his arms and said, yes, Lord, thou hast proven thyself faithful and I will believe. No, he laughed. He laughed at God. 
I mean, not only that, but when God didn't keep his promise fast enough, he acted to sort of force God's promise with, with Hagar. But Paul says here he didn't waver in his faith. And why does he say that? Well, I think the reason he says that is because when Paul says that Abraham didn't waver in his faith, he's not looking just at one or two little moments in Abraham's life and judging his entire life by those. I think he's looking at Abraham's entire life and, and saying, look, no, I, I mean, Paul knows the Bible better than you and I. So I think what he's saying is, no, I understand. Abraham's faith wasn't perfect. It wasn't smooth and, and flawless, but that doesn't change the fact that over the decades, through it all, the ups and downs and everything else, when you get right down to the bottom of it, in the face of the impossible, Abraham trusted God. I don't know about you, but the fact that Paul can say here in Romans 4, verse 20, that Abraham did not waver in his unbelief gives me great confidence and comfort. It really helps me out a lot to understand that Paul can look at Abraham's life and say, finally, he didn't waver in his unbelief because he's looking at the whole thing. But you should be encouraged by that too because you're not gonna be able to look back over the decades of your life and see a flawless faith. You're not gonna do it. But by God's grace, you may be able to look back over the decades of your life and see a faith in God that was solid through all the ups and downs. Not unnicked, not undinged, not undented, but solid. Be encouraged by that. Did you ever play the game Whack-A-Mole at, at an arcade? So most of you will know what Whack-A-Mole is. You stand in front of this big thing with holes in it and you've got a big old mallet, it's about that big, right? And these little plastic moles at random intervals will pop up, right? And your job is, as the name would imply, to whack them with the hammer. Whack a mole. That's where it comes from. Straightforward. Well, as the game goes on, right, the little moles start popping up. And then they'll go down. And they start popping up more quickly than you can actually whack them. And, and so your score is based on how many moles you can whack in the amount of time given until the time runs out and your game is over. The thing about whack-a-mole that always drives me crazy is that I know that every time I miss a mole, every time one pops up and then pops right back down, that, that is an absolutely unrecoverable error, <laughs> right? I mean, it mars the perfection of the game every time I, I miss one. Unrecoverable error. I'll never get another chance at that. Actually, he will pop back up, but you don't get another chance at hitting him that time, right? You just don't get another chance at it. It's a, it's a lost opportunity for all eternity. I did not whack that mole. <laughs> and that's a shame. I, I really think that a lot of Christians live the Christian life like they're playing a game of whack-a-mole. And they think that if, if one opportunity is, is missed or if they, if they fall one time in, into sin or if, if something goes wrong once or they make a mistake or, or this opportunity is missed, whatever, they think of it as a mole that they'll never have the opportunity to whack ever again in life. And so as the accumulation of missed moles happens in your life, it just creates this pressure of, oh my goodness, I've missed so many. But what I want to do is, 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 don't, is try to convince you not to think of your Christian life as a game of whack-a-mole. Think of it more as the navigation of a ship, right? I mean, if a, if a ship is on, on course and waves or wind or whatever, blow that ship off course a little bit. You, you don't think of that as a mole that you can never whack again. No, you just reset the course of the ship and get it back on course. Same thing with you and your Christian life. The Christian life is long and it is hard and there are lots of waves and there are lots of winds and there are lots of difficulties. 
But when the ship gets blown off course and you see that happening, don't throw up your hands and say, well, it's all hopeless then. The ship is off course. No, friend, turn the wheel and get it back on course. If you stopped reading the Bible, start reading it again. If you've stopped praying, start praying again. If you've stopped going to church, start going again. Don't think that it's a missed opportunity and you might as well throw the hammer down and walk away to another game. Put the ship back on course. Abraham did not waver or stagger in his trust in God. That's what faith is. It's a strong, confident trust in God that outweighs the world. And it's a trust that lasts for a long, long time. But I want to think about it more. That's what faith is. But what do you put your faith in? Or in other words, the second point of the sermon, faith in what? So we've already said that we're talking about faith in God's promise, but you can actually go even deeper than that because Paul grounds this faith not just in the fact that God promised something, not just in the fact that God said it, but he grounds his, his trust in that promise in the kind of God that God is. So look back at the verse just before we, where we started reading in verse 17. We drop right in the middle of a sentence here, but that's okay. Paul says in 17, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now here's the phrase I want you to see. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. See what's going on here? The promise that God made to Abraham, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, was not just made by anybody. It wasn't just made by somebody on the street, a shaman or a witch doctor, or you know, somebody who's got tarot cards in front of it. That's not the kind of promise it is. That promise was also not just made by any God. It was made, Paul says in 17, by the one God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's why Abraham had faith. It's because he looked at this impossible promise that God had made. This is ridiculous. You're gonna give me and Sarah, my barren wife, a son. That's impossible. But the reason he could believe that God would keep that promise is because he had already seen God keep promises just like that. He knew that God does exactly this kind of thing. He gives life to those who are dead. He calls into existence things which do not exist. He does the impossible. And that's why Abraham was able to hope against all hope. Not to weaken, but to grow strong in his faith. Not to waver in unbelief, but to be fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. I mean, think about it. As you think back over the story of the Bible, in the beginning, out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth, out, out of nothing. In the face of Egypt's God, he, he rescued his, his people from slavery. When, when his people were pressed up against the Red Sea, it was an impossible situation, but what does God do? He just splits the sea. And lets his people walk through it. They come to the walls of Jericho. Never been conquered by anybody because these walls are so amazing. The city is impossible to take. And what does God do? He just sort of blows on the walls and there they go. And the people march in. Centuries and centuries before it happened, he promised the Messiah would come to save his people from, his sins, from their sins. And that Messiah came over and over and over in the Bible God makes promises against impossible odds. And then he keeps those promises. If you're a Christian here today, work on developing confidence in God. 
work on developing that kind of unwavering confidence in God. People, people say, well, you know, I, I, want, I want more faith. Well, I'm not even sure what that, what that means, that phrase. I want more faith. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, faith is not a liquid that you can sort of, you know, pass back and forth or, you know, draw out another glass of and pour it into your heart. That's not how it works. What you need is not so much more faith. What you need is stronger faith. A faith that's grown from a little sapling of trust in God's promises to a great oak. A faith that is now more convinced than it used to be in its trust in God. And and how do you get that? Well, I think there are two ways that you can get it, that you can cause that little sapling of faith to, to grow and become stronger. First, just increase your understanding of who God really is. Read the Bible, catalog your life, spend some time meditating about how God has been faithful to you over and over and over. And then second, just make a decision to rest on all of that. Look at what God has promised. Look at what he has done in your life. Look at what he's done in other people's lives. Look at what he's done in history. Size him up. Look at what he said and just make a decision that, yes, I really am convinced that you can do these things, God, and I'm going to trust in you. I mean, ultimately, that's what faith is, right? It's, it's reliance. It's to, it's to trust, on, trust in something. It's to, it's to look at something and size it up and say, you know what? I think that that, that is strong enough for, for me to lean on, right? To put all my weight on. I think, I think that oak tree is big enough that when I lean on it, it's not just going to topple over. Well, see, when you put your faith in Jesus, that's exactly what you're doing. You're not taking an irrational leap of faith to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the resurrection. You're sizing the whole thing up and you're saying, Jesus, yes, I've seen your promises. I know who you are. I think you really did rise from the dead. I think you are who you say you are. I think you can do what you say you can do. And I am throwing myself completely and ultimately on you. Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to do that. Maybe you came with a friend. Maybe, you're just, maybe you just saw an advertisement for this conference and you're here and you're hearing all of this and maybe you've even thought all your life, this, this whole Christianity thing being about faith, I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a person that likes to size things up, you know? I don't believe in things that are ephemeral. I don't believe in things that are, that are irrational. Well, I'm telling you today that Christianity is not ephemeral. It's not irrational. It's based on the promises of God. It's based on a Jesus who really lived 2,000 years ago, who did extraordinary things, and then who really did bodily, physically, not metaphorically, not ephemerally, not just spiritually, get up from the dead. It happened bodily. And that happened in history as much as, as, much as George Washington was the first president of the United States happened in history. You see, we Christians don't, don't make merely religious claims out there in the ether. We make claims that are a lot more obnoxious than that. We make the claim that, yes, we really, really believe that in history, this guy got up from the dead. And then we stake our lives on that. That's what faith is. It's faith in the promises of God. Faith in the promise of Jesus that he will save all who come to him in trust. It's grounded on a belief that he really did die on the cross and rise from the dead. But for those of you who are Christians, I mean, here's, here's where the rubber kind of hits the road. Here's where the rubber hits the road with this faith thing. How much gravitational pull do these things exert in your life? 
The spiritual things that you say you believe in. The promises of God that you say you believe in. The promise of eternity, the promise of a kingdom, the promise of a city to come. The promise of forgiveness and redemption and glorification. How much gravitational pull, how much influencing power do these things exert in your life? Do those spiritual things exert as much gravitational pull in your life as your children? Do they influence your life and how you live it as much as your money does? I mean, the question really is, how real to you is heaven? This great city built without hands that God has promised to his people. Because I think most of the time, we tend to treat heaven, we tend to treat eternity like a kind of metaphor, like a kind of story, like it's not really there, but it's this, it's this narrative out there that's supposed to encourage us in the hard times of life. But what Paul wants us to understand from Abraham's life is that we ought to be as certain of the reality of that eternal city as we are of the reality of the city of Albuquerque. It's real and it exerts an influence on my life. Yeah, it may take us some time to get to that city, but it's really, really real. And it exerts the kind of gravitational pull and influence on our lives that a real thing ought to exert. So friend, if you're a Christian this morning and you don't feel these spiritual things that you say you believe in exerting gravitational pull in your life? Maybe you should back up and question just how real these things are to you. Just how certain you are that these things are true. Well, that leads to the last point, number three. Faith does what? Or what, what does it do? We've been talking about it all morning, really, but but the kind of faith that is, that is not a, a wishy-washy, weak, empty belief in the ridiculous, but rather the kind of faith in God's promises that, that says, yes, I believe these because God has proven himself faithful. That kind of faith will cause you to live your life differently. Let me point out just a few ways that that happens. First of all, first of all faith increases our love for God and our desire to obey him. Our faith in Jesus increases our love for God and our desire to obey him. That's exactly how it worked out in Abraham's life. I mean, what made Abraham willing to obey God even to the point of sacrificing Isaac? It was that he believed God and therefore he loved God and therefore he desired to obey God. You see that? The, the measure of your desire to obey God is directly related to the measure of your love for God. And the measure of your love for God is directly related to the measure of your conviction that he is as great and as good as he says he is. Small God, small love, small obedience. Great God, great love, great obedience. Believe, love, and obey. That's how it works. Here's the second thing. Second thing, a faith like this that we've been talking about gives us courage to defy the world. Gives us courage to defy the world. The, the world around Abraham would have absolutely ridiculed him. Just like it did Noah. If Abraham had gone around saying, like, I'm 100 years old, Sarah's 90 and she's barren, but God's promised that we're gonna have a son and so we're decking out the nursery. The world would have absolutely ridiculed him. But why did he remain firm in the face of that ridicule? The reason he could remain firm in the, in, in the face of ridicule was because he knew God could do the impossible and had done the impossible before. Well, how about you? 
I mean, you, you live in a world that absolutely ridicules your belief that God saves sinners through a crucified and resurrected Savior. They hate that idea. And even if there's a sort of patina of politeness that exists still in some places in our culture, deep down in the recesses of their hearts, they're ridiculing you for saying you believe that. So what do you do in the face of that? Do you cower? Do you, do you get scared? Do you, do you back down and give in? Or do you live like Abraham with a kind of holy defiance throwing off the world's ridicule, rebelling against its ungodly demands of you. You see, that's the kind of courage that a Christian should have. Not because we're so strong, not because we're so courageous, but because we're leaning on such a strong God. Here's the third thing. Faith produces joyful endurance. Faith produces joyful endurance. That's what you see, I think, in Abraham's unwavering, unweakening faith. You, you don't get the sense from what Paul says here or in the story in Genesis that, that he trusted God just kind of resignedly or sadly. Now, the sense you get reading about Abraham is that, that he walked through life, through the waiting with joy because he knew God was faithful. How about you? How do you face your sufferings? When something goes wrong in your life, how, how do you face your sufferings? Do you, do you face them with resentment and frustration and bitterness or with a kind of steely resolve and deep running joy. Fourth, and last and most importantly, faith unites us to Christ and therefore points us to eternity. Faith unites us to Christ and therefore points us to eternity. That's really what Paul's driving at here. What he's really driving at is that the one great impossible thing that God has nevertheless promised to do and that we are trusting him to do is save us. In some ways, it's a bigger miracle than, than creating the world that God should save sinners like us, that God should let us gain from Christ's reward, that he should unite us to Christ and give us the blessings of eternity that Jesus won for himself. Friend, if you believe that, if your faith, if your trust in God's promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is, is firm and centered on Jesus. If you've embraced Jesus as your savior, you can look forward to eternity with all the hope and faith and confidence in the world. I love that old hymn that we sing sometimes at, at my church anyway, maybe you do too. Abide with me. There's one verse at the end of it that says this. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. What an amazing promise. That one day, if the Lord tarries and we die, we'll close our eyes in death. But then earth's vain shadows will flee and we will open up our eyes to see heaven's morning breaking. There's a, there's a dear woman. She's not a member of my church because she's, uh, she's been homebound for a very long time and she, she just hasn't been able to do it, but she was taken off her, her son is a member of my church and she was taken off, off life support yesterday. 
I haven't heard a report of, of what's happening with her, but, but she's, a, she's a dear Christian woman from all we can tell. And, and sometime in the near future, she's going to close her eyes in death. But by God's grace, when she does so, she'll open them in heaven in the very next instant. I mean, some, someday, someday everything is going to be done. It's all going to be finished. It's all going to be, it's all going to be over. It's all going to, it's all going to wrap around and center on Jesus Christ on his throne. And on that day, all of us who are believers in Jesus are going to watch together as dawn breaks in a new resurrected earth. And God fills all the universe with the knowledge of his glory. If you believe that in a real and confident way, that'll change the way you live for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for promises that, that you've made to us even though we don't deserve them, even though we, we deserve exactly the opposite of what you've promised. Oh God, you've promised life, but what we deserve is, is death. You've promised heaven, what we deserve is, is hell. You've promised an eternity of rejoicing in your presence and praising you when what we deserve is an eternity of dying in hell under your wrath. You've made all these promises to us in and through and by the power and life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that for all of us gathered here today, you would drive our faith and confidence deeply into him and not at all into ourselves. Help us to trust him, to rely on him, to lean on him alone for salvation. His is the glory. His are the rewards and the blessings of eternity. And we praise his name because he has decided in his great love and compassion to give those blessings to us who believe in him. We pray all of this in his name and always to his honor and glory. Amen.